I want to encourage you to open a Bible, if you have one in front of you, to the book of Numbers and uh, the 21st chapter. I'm going to read to you a short story of what happened to the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they spent many years wandering in the wilderness before the conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And this is after they were delivered from Egypt. So they're in this kind of limbo phase. And many interesting things happened to them during that season. But I wanted to read to you from one specific story of what happened um, there in the wilderness. It says this in Numbers 21 and verse 4. And just to remind you, the, the verses of the, the passage are, are on the web page just below the video. It says, From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Friends, I'm as conscious as anyone that we've entered a moment of um, real crisis, like nothing that any of us have ever really known in our lifetimes. Um, none, none of us remember anything like it, because I think you have to go back 70 plus years, back to the Second World War, to know anything that feels comparable in terms of the sense of emergency or high alert that has gripped the, the whole nation at the same time. And as a result, there's immense feelings of uncertainty, immense feelings of you know, volatile emotions. I know that I'm up and down in any given moment. And one time I'm thinking, this is weird and interesting. And then I'm like feeling worried and you feel concerned about the state of friends and family and all the rest of it. And uh, that you're on, in a kind of mode of high alert. And already as a church, I want to acknowledge that we've experienced a measure of suffering. Um, we've, we've had to say goodbye to people who um, have left prematurely. They had to go back home you know, because either their job or their university course was coming to an end or they needed to, to go home early. And we've, had to, we've been wrenched apart from friends ahead of time. And the church communities experienced that fragmentation. A lot of you know personal anxiety around your jobs, around your courses, or around the, the health of, of family and maybe elderly relatives, especially um, here or at different parts of the world. And we've been cut off from each other. You know, we can't underestimate just what a profound thing that is to be separated from the relationships which make your life meaningful. And um, I, I know sources will come will uh, confirm that I've been self-isolating for the last 10 years. So it makes no difference to me. But for the rest of you, this is an enormous thing. You've been cut off from each other. And I want to ask you the question, what, what are we meant to make of this? How are we meant to think about a moment of crisis like this? What are we to understand that God is 
up to. And I, I need to say at the outset that I think that a crisis is a vitally important moment. And the reason why I say that is because crisis moments in life of any kind, and this is one that's affecting us globally, but crisis moments of any kind reveal things that you don't know about yourself or things that you don't know about your community or about your nation. And some of those things are positive. I can think just of the last few days how we've seen examples of strength and of kindness and of love um, coming out from people from unexpected quarters. We were the recipients of a note that came through our door just saying, you know, if, if you need any shopping done, we live on the estate, we're, we're, we're offering help to people. And I'm sure some of you have done the same to others. And you think there's kindness we didn't know existed in the world that's expressed. At the same time, we're also aware that a crisis like this exposes the weaknesses, it exposes the frailties that exist in our hearts. And I think about the anxieties we feel, the fears we feel. I think about the selfishness. You know, what's happening when a nation panics and buys all the food from the supermarkets at six o'clock every morning? And this is nothing but fear and, and, and looking out for oneself. And, you know, it's beneath us, but we can understand the impulse to do it. And of course, a crisis does this. A crisis exposes these weaknesses and exposes our needs and exposes the realities that you can't see when times are going well. And it's true, of course, even in your spiritual life. Um, you, you could be, if, when life is going well, you can, you can put your spiritual life on the back burner. You can forget about prayer. You can forget about God to a certain degree. And then when stuff happens that is out of your control, suddenly a crisis will reveal things. It will reveal what you're made of. It will reveal whether your spiritual life is robust or not. And so it seems to me that when I read scripture, what I see first and foremost is a God who is sovereign, who is absolutely in control of the circumstances and situations of life. And this is no less true, I want to say, with regard to what we're facing right now. And this is why I read to you this story from Numbers 21. This, the nation of Israel faced a crisis when God sent the snakes among them as a kind of act of judgment and a moment to wake them up. And you see the sovereign hand of God at work in that. But we see this pattern working all the way through Scripture. I think even in Acts chapter 4, um, during the time of the early church, a persecution broke out. And uh, the Jerusalem authorities were trying to crush the church right at the outset. And they told Peter and John, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And what impresses me about the early, the early believers is that when they go to God in prayer, in a prayer meeting, their first instinct is to go, get on their knees before him. The language of their prayer exudes this absolute certainty that God is in control. And they open their prayer with these words. They say in Acts 4, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they begin to describe events as they'd unfolded in recent days and how Jesus had been crucified at the hands of wicked men. And they said that these things had happened according to whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that immense confidence that God is in control was the foundation stone upon which these believers gained their sense of peace, measure, and certainty in the midst of what was otherwise a crisis. And with that mindset, I think we can think differently about what we're going through right now in the world and also personally. 
And I guess the question I want to ask with you is this. If a crisis like this is happening under the sovereign control of a living God, what is he doing? What is God up to? And I want to give you a few answers to that question. The first is that God uses crises to humble you. He uses a crisis to to bring us down, I suppose, and to humble us. Now, let me approach it like this. Ask yourself the question, what is the greatest enemy of authentic spirituality in your life, in all of our lives? And I think the answer, 100% of the time, is our pride. Pride, on the one hand, leads us to independence from God, a prayerlessness, a refusal to express um, day-to-day um, desire to depend on him for strength and sustain, sustaining and for power, and instead leads us to, to self-governed lives, doing our own thing, independence from God, the sense that we don't particularly need him. And of course, that, that root of pride lies underneath every kind of effort to walk away from God or to ignore him or to abandon him or just to feel that you don't need him. And you can see a little bit of this dynamic going on in the story in Numbers 21. Moses tells us how um, they begin to get impatient. He says that they were impatient and they begin to murmur and get frustrated with God. And underneath it is this logic that God isn't good and we're better off without him. We're better off, you know, we can get on in life without God. God isn't helping us. You know, what good has God ever done us? And so human pride settles in in this sense of entitlement. And then when their hearts are in that place, you know, they could walk away from God just as easily. And it seems to me that that captures the spiritual atmosphere of the world in which we live right now. We live in a, in a day and an age in which God has largely become an irrelevance, in which people ask the question, what good has God ever done us? You know, we can, we can get on without him. We don't need God. And so human pride, it's always been there, but it's expressed in this very clear way in our, in our day and an age. And we can feel it in our own hearts, can't we? When life is going well, we think, what, what, good, what, what good does God do us? And that philosophy of life can work well for you for a little while. You can get on with most things in life without reference to God. You can, you can experience real joy and success in your work without reference to God. You can, you can marry, um, you can make babies, you can enjoy loving family relationships without reference to God. You can get all the stuff you need in life, have a comfortable life without reference to God. But if that's true of you, then you end up living under an illusion, essentially. The illusion that you don't need him. Why do I say it's an illusion? Because the Bible tells us that even when all these things are going well in our lives and we're not, you know, we're not living with reference to God, God is still there sustaining our lives in every given moment. There was a Christian philosopher called Cornelius Van Til who put it like this. He said, a little child may slap his father in the face, but it can do so only because the father holds it on his knee. And there's a sense in which every time the human instinct is to turn away from God or, or worse, to kind of curse God or to feel frustration with God or to, to say, I don't even believe in God, that slap in the face is only possible because God is giving you life and breath in that moment. 
In Acts 17, there's a line that says that in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God gives you the breath that's in your lungs right now. The very breath with which you can deny God is the same breath that God is giving you to sustain your life in that moment. We have to sit on God's knee in order to slap him in the face. When human pride pulls us away into independence away from God, in a sense we don't need him, God may well induce a crisis to humble us. And he puts us in a situation that is, that is out of our control, that's beyond our control. And you can see this happening in the passage here. You can see this happening in our world. We, we feel out of control. We feel like we, we don't know any sense of security or certainty about what tomorrow will look like or the days and months ahead. And you can think, by the way, when you consider why is it that people are going to the shops and stockpiling all this food, it's because it's a last vestige of control. It's an attempt to take control in a world which is rapidly becoming unpredictable and out of control. It's like you've been thrown in the deep end and the first thing you grab is, is, is a float and the float is as much food as I can hoard. And Jesus, Jesus said that this is God's method. He said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that the storms will come. And when the storms come and they lash the house, which is a picture of your life, they lash it in order to expose what your foundations are. So that if your life isn't built on God, it will in that moment crumble when you're humbled and you recognize I didn't build my life well. But if your life is built on stone, on the word of God, on Christ, then you will suffer a different fate. You'll know security. You'll know his peace and his promise. God uses a crisis to humble you, is my first point. The second thing I want to say is this, that God uses a crisis to call you to repentance. Now, I want you to consider with me for a second this question. If you'd asked an Israelite that day, what is the biggest problem facing you and your community right now? The answer would have been the snakes. The snakes are the problem. And, you know, I get that. That certainly seems like a valid answer. But it would also have been wrong. The real, the deepest problem, the main problem, the real crisis that was facing them as a community was their sin, was their sort of the, the, the broken relationship, the breach that had come in their relationship with God and the fact that they were walking away from him, the fact that they were experiencing this tear and this rebellion in their hearts. And this to me speaks powerfully to our context. If you were to ask the question, what's the biggest problem facing the world today? The answer is not a pandemic. It's not the fact that there's a virus traveling around the world. The biggest problem in the world today is not the economic fallout. And none of us know just what the world is going to look like on the other side economically. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem in the world is not the rebalance of power that's going to take place globally when, when we emerge out of the other end of this thing. It may cause us to fear, but it's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem in the world is the disease, which is more chronic, can I say, and more persistent, which is the disease of sin. It's more lethal, it spreads faster, and it's much more difficult to cure than anything that we're facing right now. Now, that way of thinking gives us perspective on a momentary crisis like the one we're facing. Because you, can think, you could ask 
the question, well, how could God allow this to happen? How can a God who is in control allow such terror to fall upon us and such a sense of us being out of control as humanity? Why is God allowing this? But I think a question like that only makes sense if you think this life is all there is. It only makes sense if you think living for now, living for the comforts of this life, trying to be healthy and live as long as possible and accumulate as much stuff as possible is the purpose of life. Of course, as Christians, we fundamentally don't believe that. So instead we ask, well, what's worse? Is it worse to face a crisis like this that has the potential to humble you and humble others and provoke you potentially to turn back to God? Or is it worse to continue on? in ignorance and comfort and ease in life, not aware that there is a deep root of sickness, a deep-rooted disease that underlies all of us, which is the issue of sin, which separates us from God. Or ask it this way, what's the worst thing that can happen to a person? It's not that they should lose their job. It's, it's bad to lose your job, and I want to I'm sympathetic to those of you who may find yourself in that situation, but it's not the worst thing that can happen. It's not, the worst thing that can happen is not that you can spend weeks on your own, um, you know, cursed to watch reruns of Friends on Netflix on repeat. It's not that you even could get sick and die. You know, that may sound like the worst possible thing that can happen. The Bible's emphatically clear. This is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about persecution, he said, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, he says, God is a greater threat than any earthly danger you face, even a virus. God is a greater threat. Now, if that's true of God, then we can understand that when he induces a moment of crisis that's designed to humble us, he does so because he loves us, because he wants to wake us up, and ultimately because he wants to call us to repentance, because he wants to turn hearts back to him, because he wants us to understand what has always been true of us, that we are weak and powerless creatures, that we are not in control of our days, we're not in control of our life, we're not in control of our death. You never were. It was always an illusion. And a moment like this makes it very clear. There are precious verses in the book of Hosea that says this. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. He's describing how God had subjected his people to extreme moments of pain, that he had torn them, that he had struck them down. But it wasn't to leave them wounded and bleeding and hurting it was so that he could then heal them and bind them up and mend them and actually make them new put them in a place where they're better off than they were before and that's what you see happening in the book of numbers where their relationship with god had grown sour and distant and full of the corruption of human pride as soon as they experience this crisis and people in the camp begin to die 
they turn back to him in repentance. They're broken. They're humbled. And it says in verse 7, they turn to Moses and say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. I want to bring you to a final point, friend. I've talked about how God uses a crisis to humble you and then to call you to repentance. And my final point is this. God uses a crisis to give you an opportunity for redemption. What does God do when people turn back to him in repentance? And the answer is that he immediately gives them the gift of health and strength. That he, he instantaneously responds with an answer. And this is something you see all the way through the Bible. Wherever God's hand rests heavy on a people, as soon as they're humble, as soon as they come back to him repentance, it's like he's melted and he turns to people and he says, um, come back to me. One of the most vivid examples of this is the story of the prodigal son, which Jesus tells in the book of Luke chapter 15 and how the younger son runs away from his father and spends his inheritance in wild living. And he's utterly humbled. Then he repents, which means he turns around and decides to come back home. And upon coming home, he, he prepares a speech where he's going to say to his father, look, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's prepared his heart to go and to go and say sorry to his dad and just live as a servant in his dad's household. And what does his father do? He sees him from across the fields. He pulls up his robe so he can run and he starts sprinting towards his son so that when they embrace, they fall on each other's shoulders. And there's a moment of this beautiful intimacy and restoration as the father and the son are reconciled and the father throws a party. This is the, the heart of God. We see it all the way through scripture. Sometimes we have to be broken so that we'll repent. But the second we repent, God provides the means of redemption. And that's what's happened in this story. As soon as God's people turn back to him and say, we've sinned, God gives Moses these instructions to, to put up this pole on which there is a bronze snake so that whenever people can look at the snake, they'll be healed instantly. Now, this is actually a much more meaningful story than it seems on the surface of things. And I'll tell you why. Jesus wouldn't be born for another 1500 years after this. But as is true of so many of the Old Testament stories, there are these echoes and allusions to the coming of Jesus and what Jesus would do with his life, death and resurrection. And I think about stories like when Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah and he goes up and as he lays his son down on the altar and he lifts up the knife in order to strike him dead, suddenly a ram is seen to be caught in a thicket next to them. And we understand as the reader, the ram dies in the place of Isaac and the ram is sacrificed instead of the son. So there's a substitute. Oh, it's Jesus. Or when you're reading about the Exodus story and how on the, on the Passover night, they have to kill the lamb. Each household kills a lamb and paints its blood on the doorposts. Because the, the angel of death in passing over would pass over those households and not kill the firstborn son. And we understand when we read that, oh, the, the death of the lamb is a substitute for the life of the firstborn in the household. In the same way, Christ died instead of us so that we could be saved. 
Or when you're reading about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and how the priest on that day would kill a single goat to atone for the sins of the whole nation and offer the goat on the altar and its blood would be sprinkled on the altar. We understand when we read this, this is really about Jesus. Jesus is the final sacrifice whose blood would cover us from our sins. And the Old Testament is full of this and pregnant with these illusions and these images and these echoes of the coming of Jesus and what he would come to accomplish for us by dying on the cross. Now, Jesus himself references this story of the bronze snake in one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. When in John's gospel and chapter three, he says this, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man, which is a way of referring to himself, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was speaking, of course, about the fact that in not so many years from that point, he himself would be lifted up like the snake on the pole. He'd be lifted up and pinned, nailed to a cross and put up in a visible place where people could look at him. And he says, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he goes on and explains in a bit more depth. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This, to me, makes the whole thing crystal clear. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying the situation of the Israelites in the desert, when they were experiencing the judgment of God, when they were being caused to have to turn back to God, and when God provided a moment of salvation by the provision of this bronze snake that they could look to and be saved, he said the situation of Israel in the desert is a picture of the situation of humanity as a whole. When we experience something of the lash of God's judgment, when we experience something of the pain of our inadequacy, of our smallness, and we begin to realize that we are not in control of our lives, we are not in control of our deaths, and that we are wrong to ignore the God who made us. When our hearts begin to turn back to him and we, we, we decide we need to know him, we need to know f freedom from fear, we need to know security beyond life that will carry on into the next life then what provision do we have? And Jesus, Jesus is saying the situation for humanity is that they can be saved the same way the Israelites were saved in the desert, except not by a bronze snake on a stick, but by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, who's been raised up, put on a cross to be a sacrifice for us, to be the one who gave his life instead of us, the one who shed his blood for our sake. I want to say a final word to you. Some of you I know our Christian, you love Jesus, you call him Lord of your life. And I want to remind you, friend, if you've looked to Christ on the cross, the greatest possible crisis that you could face, which is to face God, aware, conscious, carrying all your sin, that crisis has already been averted. It's been dealt with. Christ has taken your sin off you. He has made your judgment before God one day absolutely safe, absolutely secure. And if the greatest crisis has been dealt with, why do we need to be afraid in a moment like this? But I also am conscious that some of you, some of you don't know Jesus and, and you suddenly maybe have become aware. Maybe this is the reason why you've tuned in. You're aware that you're afraid. You don't know what lies beyond 
this life. You don't know what your life is built upon or whether the foundations of your life are secure because everything around you is shaking and you feel insecure. And I want to encourage you, friend. God is still sovereign, but he's calling you back to himself. He's calling you to a place of humility in which you can turn to him and say, God, I realize my life was built on very shaky foundations. I need to know you. I need to be forgiven by you. I need to know your healing power. I need to have this poison extracted so I can look at the cross and be healed. If that's something you want to do, if you want to turn back to God, I want to encourage you to take a moment to pray. I'm going to pray now. You can join with me. And Pete and Nats are going to lead us in, in a response of worship before we close. But why don't you just close your eyes and bow your head and let's pray together. Father, we want to confess that you are in control of all things. You're the God who is seated on your throne. And no crisis that we face is, an, is a cause for you to ever panic, Lord. You're totally sovereign. You're totally in control. And Father, we want to come to you and confess that so often our pride, when times are good, our pride pulls us away from you. Sometimes it's just because our spiritual lives just, just go on the back burner. Our prayer lives become weak. We think, you know, oh, tomorrow I'll sort things out. And for some of us, Lord, it's that we've just been away from you for a long time, thinking we can get on with life without knowing God. And suddenly, we know that isn't true. Suddenly, we realize that everything we thought was certain about this world is weak, is subject to being broken. And Lord, we don't want to place our confidence in ourselves anymore. We don't want to place our confidence in our abilities personally or as humanity to deal with our own situations. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that is available to us now to deal with this present crisis. But Lord, ultimately, we know we need you. And I pray, Lord, that you'll minister peace to those who know and love you. And I pray, Lord, for that those for those who have either wandered away from you for a long time or who have never known you, Lord, I pray that they'll, perhaps for the first time, faced with fear, faced with anxiety, faced with uncertainty, will want to look to you and look to the cross, look to Jesus, the Savior who died, that we could live. And I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen.